There was a time not too long ago when the Republican Party had a different focus than it does today. And that focus was developing and expanding constituencies, trying to make the tent bigger than it currently is. Not excluding people, not finding reasons for people to shy away or to be turned away, but rather to invite people in and give them reasons to walk away from the Democratic Party and consider the Republican options. And one path toward that end that I really hoped would develop, and there were indications that it might and that it could, but it never quite took off, was educational reform, educational options, introducing concepts of liberty and market forces into the conversation of how people educate their students, educate their children, and addressing the achievement gap and the results that people are seeing from, in many cases, an abysmal public education system. Uh, This remains an opportunity. This remains a, a path that could potentially prove very worthwhile, both in terms of electoral outcomes and policy outcomes, which, of course, are more important, you know, actually improving people's lives, actually making the world a better place, kind of a big deal. This is a good potential path for that or a ripe area of public policy for that type of endeavor. But the difficulty is it's an uphill battle, right? You have to work against entrenched ideas about what the role education has in our society, the role that the state is supposed to play in education. And it's an uphill battle both culturally in terms of definitions, in terms of trying to set the narrative. And, you know, when you're dealing with, it's kind of like mining. Politics is kind of like mining in the sense that you look for the rich veins and you look for the digs that are going to involve the least amount of expense and the least amount of effort because that's where your highest profit margin is going to be. And in a similar sense, politics likes to go for the low-hanging fruit. What are people upset about right now, and how can I leverage it to my immediate electoral end? You know, unfortunately, that's the the nature of the beast. And short-term, that makes sense. Even mid-term, to some extent, that makes sense. But long-term, looking out into the future, you have to be willing to plant seeds to start digging now, you know, the, the metaphor that comes to mind is an exploratory well right? Start digging, not because there's something there if you know for sure that's worth digging after, but just to see, just to start to plant the seed, to start to investigate whether or not you can eventually get some sort of political or legislative return on the effort. And education is one of these areas. And the left understands this. The left understands this in a, a variety of different public policy areas, But what they're always trying to do over on the left is they're always looking for opportunities to push the the overall narrative, the Overton window, like Glenn Beck used to talk about, wrote a whole book about. They're always trying to push it 
in a direction that will ultimately lead to their policy solutions. And they're, they're willing to engage in efforts that aren't necessarily going to pay off today, this year, this term, this election cycle, but potentially will pay off 10, 15, 20 years from now. And they do so with a fervor and a sense of commitment and a warrior spirit that is lacking on the right. You know, they fight for their principles, the left does. Now, granted, the what the left considers to be principles are profoundly immoral, deeply impractical, actually evil, rights violating, and ought to be opposed. They're not they don't there's no virtue in the way and what the left goes after. But you do have to admire the intensity and the commitment with which they go after it. I have an example of that here that I want to share with you here at the top of the program. We will be joined momentarily, by the way, by David Pasco, the deputy chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota, to react to President Donald Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. He's going to help us break down the latest on that. That'll be in about oh, 10, 20 minutes or so. Closing arguments, the name of the program. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. 651-989-5855 is the number to do so. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. From the Atlantic. What to do when a school is infested with vermin, when textbooks are outdated, when students can't even read? Perhaps the answer is is sue the government. That's what seven students in Detroit have done. Their class action suit filed against the state of Michigan asserts that education is a basic right and that they have been denied it. Usually such education equity cases win their way through state courts as all 50 state constitutions mandate public education systems. While the country's guiding document doesn't even include the word education, But this case, Geary B. versus Snyder, was filed in federal court and thus seeks to invoke the Constitution. And as of this week, it's headed to the federal appeals court in Cincinnati. The lawyers filing the suit from the pro bono Los Angeles firm Public Counsel contend that the students, who attend five of Detroit's lowest performing schools, are receiving an education so inferior and underfunded that it's as if they're not attending school at all. The 100-page complaint alleges that the state of Michigan, which has overseen Detroit's public schools for nearly two decades, is depriving these children, 97% of whom are students of color, of their constitutional rights to liberty and non-discrimination by denying them access to basic literacy. Now, I want to pause here to, to make sure you understand what's taking place here. When I talk about the left being willing to plant seeds that may not germinate for decades to come, for years to come. This is an example of it. You know, we didn't get to Obamacare overnight, right? You you guys remember Hillary Care? You old enough to remember that? And and even years prior to that, there's been advocacy for universal health care and government-funded and organized and run nationalized health care for years. And at the time, when Hillary Care was floated, it was absurd. Hillary was laughed off the political stage with her push for national health care in the 90s. But here we are, 20 years later, and what do we got, right? We got Obamacare, the prototype, the step in the direction of 
what they're now calling for, which is Medicare for all, right? So they're willing to take the incremental steps. They're willing to to float what in the current moment seems like an absurd idea in order to push the narrative in the direction of the policy they eventually want. And this is another example of that. This lawsuit, these students suing the state of Michigan with a federal lawsuit. This is intentional that you can you can bet this is thought out. They did this for a reason, a strategic reason. They could have taken this to the state courts in Michigan, which is what would have made sense, right? That's where they because the state of Michigan is actually the entity that has in their constitution a guaranteed right to education. But no, they specifically went to the federal government. Why? Because they wanted to be able to make this argument that education is a basic human right and that it's guaranteed by the United States Constitution so that they can establish that precedent and then push for whatever it is they're looking for in education in order to their prescribed solution for solving the achievement gap. So continuing here at the Atlantic. Almost all the students at these schools perform well below grade level in reading and writing, and the suit alleges those skills are necessary to function properly in society. It's the first case to argue that the U.S. Constitution guarantees the right to become literate and thus to be educated, because other rights in the Constitution necessarily require the ability to read. This is their argument. Their argument is that you cannot enjoy your life you cannot proceed in a sense of liberty. You cannot pursue happiness if you don't have basic education, if you don't have literacy. Therefore, the, through the penumbras and emanations, right, we're going back to this, where we can infer from the language of the Constitution that, in fact, there is a basic human right to be literate. And that's what they're arguing these students have, have been denied. The case is a long shot. Late last week, the district court judge in Detroit, Stephan Jay Murphy dismissed it. The plaintiffs are appealing that dismissal. Murphy essentially stated that he needed guidance from the Supreme Court. That's, of course, the objective here. That's why they filed the suit. If he were to weigh in on whether the students' abysmal proficiency levels and learning conditions amount to a violation of the Constitution. Even though Michigan subjects the predominantly black Detroit students to conditions which uh, to which it doesn't subject, say, the predominantly white students of nearby Gross Point, Murphy wrote, there isn't enough evidence to suggest that the state is treating the former group differently because of their race and thus violating the Equal Protection Clause. Another obstacle, the federal judiciary has grown particularly restrained on educational rights issues in recent decades. Uh, a suit like Gary B. versus Snyder, which is the suit in question, the fact that it was even filed says a lot about the state of education in the United States today. The case is indicative of a new chapter in American education in which advocates frustrated with persistent achievement gaps and glaring disparities in school quality despite efforts to combat those problems are resorting to unconventional means to bring about change. The lawyers behind Gary B. versus Snyder sought recourse through the federal system, explained Christy Bowman, an education law scholar at Michigan State University who co-wrote an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs, because Michigan's courts have generally refused to take on education rights cases. That's largely because the language on education in its constitution is even more vague and limited uh, than it is in constitutions in many other states. So, you know, the point that I want to get across here, you know, aside from what I've already articulated, which is that the left is very willing to invest in long-term strategic goals. You know, th this lawsuit was not going to go anywhere, and they knew it wasn't going to go anywhere. 
but they did it anyway because it plants the seed. It starts the narrative ball rolling down the hill to where they can get to the point 10, 15, 20 years from now where the conversation on education is orbiting this core idea that education is a basic human right, that it's implied in the Constitution as something that everyone must have. Now, conservatives need to get on board with this. They need to they need to have a answer to this. And they need to get out in front of what's taking place here and establish their narrative, which probably ought to be, look, l- let's start here. They're suing the government because ki- their kids aren't able to read, right? What if the if the government just decides no? Like this this judge decided he was going to dismiss the case, right? Where can you go? Where's your recourse? Nothing, right? And and even if they won the lawsuit, then what? Who 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 gets restored and how? How are you going to fix the problem? In the private sector, if you had a contractual arrangement with an education provider and they committed fraud or otherwise failed to abide by their contractual obligation, you could take them to court and then if they were found to be having engaged in a tort, having harmed you, then they would make you whole. They would indemnify you. You would get your money back for all intents and purposes. That That's not the objective here, right? Plus, it, so that's that's the justice angle. But then you also have the the economics and the market mechanisms that come into play in terms of how is it that we even have a system where you have rat-infested schools, where kids are going through it, you know, for six to 12 years and not learning how to read. How is that even possible? That would never happen in the market. No parent is going to continue to send their money to a school that's not teaching their kids how to read. That would never happen, right? And so why is this the way the system is set up? Conservatives need to be able, even though, you know, this narrative going against the status quo of where the public education system is at today is a very difficult uphill battle. If we're not willing to plant those seeds now, then we can forget about, we might as well just get ready 15, 20 years from now for the argument to be settled on education, just like healthcare, being portrayed as a basic human right that ought to be guaranteed by the government, which is going to ensure that we have the same problems that we have today, just amplified and extensively more expensive. 651-989-5855. David Pasco in studio, ready to talk with us about Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Talking about an effort in Michigan to sue the state of Michigan in federal court because kids aren't learning how to read. And it's all based on the notion that there is a constitutional, we're talking about the federal United States Constitution here now, a constitutional right to education, that it's a basic human right, the same language that you hear used when we get into the healthcare debate you know, and, and these positive rights wherein the, the progressive vision is that we're entitled to certain things, certain provisions 
you know, whether it's housing or healthcare or education or I suppose food is probably in there somewhere as well. Basically, the things you need to survive and thrive. And uh, it's a an effort that isn't going anywhere anytime soon. But the left loves to plant these seeds that eventually germinate into dominant cultural narratives that provide the conditions in which they can pursue their policy objectives. And so we need to be wary of that and we need to be engaging in a sort of counterintelligence operation in order to plant our own narratives and push our own long-term agendas. And that's something that historically, in my opinion, at least conservatives have been pretty bad at. Let's talk to Anthony in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, thank you uh, so much for taking my call. It's good to speak to you again, Walter. Um, so there was a while back, probably a year ago, I called in, and I remember talking on this exact point before Betsy DeVos was confirmed as the educational secretary. There was a really popular idea out there that was thrown out there as to uh, completely dismantle the Department of Education. But now it seems they've uh, merged it with the Department of Labor, so we'll see how that works. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping with Trump being the business guy he is, he's going to understand that the main problem for why education is the way it is as of right now is no child left behind. As a uh, millennial, Generation Z, whatever you want to call me, I'm, I'm uh, 22 years old, I went through the school system, it is entirely based around how good of grades uh, you can get on a test. I should say your test scores, not your grades. Mm-hmm. Right. And your your test your test scores are a basic curriculum. So the teachers show up; they barely put in any effort, and the majority of your work packet right. is packet it. work. Right, right, right. So a lot of kids don't uh, really care. So I was thinking, if you got rid of no child left behind, and you either made it more comprehensive, or you made there more incentive for uh, kids to go to private school, or kids to go to charter school, or even homeschool. Or if you started trade schools and you just got rid of this whole curriculum bullcrap, you know? So if the kid whose dad is a master mechanic, he wants to be a mechanic, why does he have to go through, you know, 12 years of school that's not going to teach him anything when he can just, when he could just be, uh, you know, learning his trade? Sure, and he can get an sure. Start. Just stuff like that. It's just, it's just common sense, and I think we're going to see it move in that direction with Trump uh, repealing some of these child labor laws. So now you, so now if you're 17, you're able to work with power tools more, more than 20 hours a week than you were, you know, than you were able to before. I was unaware of that restriction, but uh, it doesn't surprise me that it's on the books. I appreciate your, your thoughts as always, Anthony. Yeah. You know what Anthony's speaking to, there is incentives and the, the incentives come from the customer. Right. The, the customer, when you're dealing with a, a transactional relationship, which education is, you know, you're taking, you're taking your student, you're tr- entrusting them to an educational system and you're expecting to get a result. Who's the customer in that situation? Well, under the public education system, the customer is the state. And so when the state says, we're going to have this program called No Child Left Behind and the incentive is we want to see test scores that meet this certain arbitrary standard. Well, then that's what the system is going to ensure it does in order to perpetuate itself. You know, when, when the, the left identifies that education is a value that people need in order to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, they're right about that. 
But the ultimate arbiter of happiness is the individual. Like, I know what I need. I know what my student needs, what my children need. And so I'm going to pursue that. And so if you put me in charge, if you make me the customer, then the system is going to be geared toward meeting the needs that I'm bringing to the table rather than the needs that the state's bringing to the table. And under that dynamic, you're not going to see this scenario whereby kids are going through 6 to 12 years of school and coming out the other side not knowing how to read because I I can guarantee you I'm not going to continue to pay for that, and most other people aren't either. We're joined by David Pascoe, the deputy chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota. Appreciate you coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate your your tolerance for our... uh, deviation into the educational topic but you know off the top of your your head there i know you've been listening in what are your thoughts on the status quo and what have you been hearing on the campaign trail from the republican endorsed candidates about the education system well education you know like this is a a great topic and you know it of course ties in with everything that we're going to be talking about later with uh, the supreme court and everything but what strikes me about this conversation what uh you had just been talking through and, and and everything is what is the problem? Okay, you have a lot of educational problems in inner cities and places that uh, are controlled by whom? Democrats, right? So you have one avenue, which is, of course, fix the problem in your local area to try to change the political system, to change the people who are in charge of these schools and these uh, nonprofits that are supposed to be helping people. But instead of doing that, they say, well, the best option that we can uh, we can deal with is, well, we'll just float a court case and we'll just keep hammering this 14th amendment argument and hopefully in 20 years it sticks and then we'll somehow fix it but it doesn't actually fix the problem it just if that were to go through it just means that we're putting more money into schools and we keep doing that and it doesn't actually solve any of the problems yeah what it does is it'll create a different political incentive right and the and the different political incentive will be to equalize the perceived outcomes right mm-hmm. and so there's only two ways to do that you either artificially inflate the results you're getting from the mm-hmm. crap schools mm-hmm. or you tear down through a, a type of a type of sabotage right. the performance of the good schools Either of those things is horrible. Like hmm. either of those things is deeply immoral right. and, and evil. I mean, to to tell a student, "Hey, good job," when they didn't do a good job, mm-hmm. is a disservice to them. And and conversely, to know that a student can do better and to pull take off, to your foot off the gas and say, "No, no, 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 don't run quite so fast, mm-hmm. don't work quite so hard," because we don't want to make these other people feel bad, is also evil. Yeah. And so you know the. The, the objective properly ought to be, and this should be a pretty uncontroversial statement mm-hmm. that I'm about to make here. The objective ought to be, you know, actually educating children. Stop. <laughs> Too much. You crossed a line, sir. And so the question becomes, how do we actually do that? Mm-hmm. And I and I think that some of our Republican candidates have options when it comes well, to Well, the Republican candidates rightly point out um, that a lot of what happens on the other side is all done for optics. It's all done for what the feel-good thing to do is, whether it be file a lawsuit, have a press conference, do that. But you know, we're, we, we go out there, and very generally, different candidates have different ideas on how to fix education or, or any host of issues, but we're trying to come forward with actual solutions. And solutions are hard. They're, they're not something that you can actually uh, assume is going to be fixed or something is going to be fixed in five months or, you know, a year. Uh, you have to change the culture. You have to get people engaged and on board. And that's what's happening here is, well, we, we don't want to get people engaged and on board to fix the issue. We're just going to file a lawsuit to deal with it. Um, and that's, that's, it's a nice press conference. It's a nice thing to say, oh, we, we did something, but it doesn't actually affect the people who are, uh, as Anthony mentioned, uh, just kind of 
dealing with terrible education. I'm I'm glad I'm almost 36, so I'm glad I got out of the system. Yes, you know, right. I, you know, right when it was starting to get bad and everything. So yeah. I I'm, I'm very lucky in in that sense. Yeah, you, know? you and I are like the proverbial action heroes who just died out the window <laughs> as the building was exploding yep. behind yep. us. David Pascoe in studio, Deputy Chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota. We're going to get into Brett Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court nomination. When we return, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk.com. Clarence in St. Paul, Greg in Minneapolis want to talk about education i do as well we'll get to it here momentarily but i want to spend some time with our in-studio guest david pascoe deputy chair of the republican party of minnesota talking about the supreme court nomination that we just beheld from president <laughs> donald trump that was a good spectacle yeah he, yeah he put on a good show for and, and especially like the winnowing down of the lists you yeah. know we've got this list of 25 now it's down to five like oh and then everyone's betting on it in vegas and everything it makes it a lot more fun yeah yeah well i you know i can i can talk about a lot of different things if uh if you want to hit on anything specific i mean it's 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 fascinating to me how um normal Kavanaugh is. is of all the directions that Trump could have gone um he could have gone to someone who was going to be a firebrand he could have gone right. to someone with, that had no paper trail like obviously uh Kavanaugh has been um on the DC circuit for a long time and he has published opinions and has made controversial and non-controversial statements um so you know what you're getting with him and what's you know what one of the podcasts or one of the shows that I was listening to today was talking about the fact that well he's a bush pick essentially so a lot of the establishment people in the republican party are happy you know the the rubios and you know the the um you know john mccain would probably be very happy with right. this pick so yeah. um the the Obviously, the the story is the fact that Democrats are acting like it's the end of the world, and they oh, always do. Unbelievable. Yeah, and they always do. And what is? I was having a conversation with a friend earlier today about. I remember the Bush years, and in the Bush years, he was the devil. He was killing all of us. Right. Uh, everything yeah. like he was destroying the environment. Everything was bad. And when Trump came around, Trump became president. It just well, that rhetoric was the same. I think people were a little bit more upset. Uh, you know, maybe Trump presented a different face, but the rhetoric is still the sky's falling. The world is going to end. The next thing that comes out of this guy's mouth is going to murder a thousand people. Right. And and it's it, it doesn't happen. We haven't gone to war. The economy is doing all right. And, you know, it's well, like, yeah. not only has it not happened, but right. as you know, things have gotten better. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and as a guy who was not who's never been a huge Trump fan. You gotta tip your hat to the sure, guy sure. in terms of what has been accomplished under his watch yeah. and what is and the the overall trajectory that we continue to see the economy especially going. Right, absolutely. And you know, just with uh with Kavanaugh specifically, I think a lot of his previous jurisprudence and you know i'm i'm not going to pretend to be a, a supreme court expert i'm not right. going to pretend to know his full case history and everything but when you look at what he has done it's fairly anything that is different is kind of around the edges it's not like he's going to you know upend precedent and you he has his opinions on certain things but he is generally in line with uh protecting government authority to do certain things yeah. and, and not kind of going beyond his Oprah powers is a, right. a judge or a justice, you know. So I think that the 
the boy who cried wolf that is coming from the Democrats is, is just it's too much. And if maybe, you know, Barrett was nominated or something, maybe sure. there would be a kernel of a case for that. But well, and th- that's when, you know, let, let's address the skepticism from conservatives Go. of yeah. Kavanaugh. Because one of the arguments that you could make, and I think with some merit about the Kavanaugh pick, is that because we're seeing the sky is falling, boy who cried wolf rhetoric coming from the left, which we knew was going to happen Mm -hmm. no matter what, then why not go for broke? Why not go for an Amy Barrett, somebody who is a firebrand, somebody who is going to make a meaningful difference, potentially, allegedly. We, we of course, don't know what is going to actually happen. But I mean, you know, and and I kind of understand the instinctual answer to that question, which is that you know, yes, you could de- you could definitely go that right. Mm-hmm. You could go the hail mary pass mm-hmm. in terms of having a, a profound effect upon the way the court decides cases moving forward, or you could take the strategic approach of saying, "Listen, this is somebody who the other guy might have picked, right? Mm-hmm. Like this might have been an Obama sure. selection, yeah." In terms, of, I mean, it's, it's it's certainly the guy clerked for Anthony Kennedy, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So he's cut from the same mold. Mm-hmm. You look at the case, you know, Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire had uh, a number of criticisms that have been made by conservatives about Kavanaugh. He had this case called Seven Sky where he went out of his way to avoid jurisdiction over Obamacare, was the first person in the judicial system to classify the fine as a tax. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Which, of course, was oh, later Roberts. used by Roberts. Thanks, John. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. Right. So, and then there's another things like that where where conservatives are going, hmm, right. that doesn't that doesn't sound like something that I'd be looking for in a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. But perhaps you know that's that's part of that's strategically sound in sure. terms of it. It does create the scenario where the Democrats look like they're tripping all over themselves mm-hmm. in order to demonstrate that the sky's falling when in fact it's right there and it's totally fine and there yeah. are the birds chirping and time. <laughs> well, I mean, that's maybe maybe that is the strategy is he gets on the court. Um, he's, he's, uh, he goes through the nominations process and he, and he's, he's, uh, you know, approved by the Senate and, you know, he hears cases, nothing happens. And uh, the whole Democrat argument for the midterms is that he, Trump is going off the rails and it's all terrible and everything that he does and, and says and thinks is just the worst thing in the world. But then, you know, like you said, normal people will kind of say, okay, n- I'm not really getting that. Things are okay. The person that he picked was seemed pretty normal. Gorsuch has seemed pretty normal. Now, I do think that uh, Kavanaugh is going to move the court to the right. So, you know, some of the swing sure. issues yeah. that Kennedy was all about, I don't think is going to be something or they I don't think they're going to be something that Kavanaugh is necessarily going to be interested in. Um, there's uh, the 538 blog podcast, the website. Yeah. Uh, they did a full um they did a full uh, rundown of gerrymandering, party, partisan gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering, how that's gone through in the courts. And one of the the big things that they were talking about is what will Kennedy do? Because Kennedy had uh, gone through some gone through some motions of saying maybe there could be something that would be unconstitutional, but we need a test and we need something that's kind of firm to to make that case. And when Kennedy was doing that, that's what all of the gerrymandering people were kind of hoping that Kennedy would swoop in. And in you know these previous, there was just some cases this term that dealt with it, and he didn't really uh, step in it really, really heavily. You know, he didn't go too deep in it. Um, and now a lot of people that were looking at Kennedy at perhaps generating some sort of uh, test 
they're not really interested anymore or they they don't think that Kavanaugh is going to go down the same road. So, you know, Kennedy is the swing justice for 30 years, w- made a made a major mark on the court. And I don't think that that's going to be there. One of the things that a lot of people are talking about is, is John Roberts, the new swing justice, is right. his respect for the institution of the court and the cases that it takes and the things that it decides. Is he going to try to moderate the four other confirmed conservative justices right. from kind of going off the rails? I don't know. We'll yeah, and and frankly, I've never understood the desire to moderate the way right. things are going on yeah. the court. I mean, the the left doesn't have that concern at all. No. They have no compunction about no. making broad, sweeping judgments mm-hmm. that completely up in the game table of jurisprudence yeah. and redefine reality mm-hmm. for the entire nation yeah. on a whim. Yeah. So why are we so restrained mm-hmm. on the on the right in terms of oh we got to make sure we do everything incrementally? Yeah. But you know, I suppose you have to go to Yale and Harvard in order to be bestowed <laughs> with that kind of wisdom. Well, th- that's I mean that's that's a beef that I kind of have with it is everyone's from Yale and Harvard. Everyone's from Yale and Harvard. You know, we had uh, Amy Barrett was at least not a Yale or Harvard educated attorney. Right. Um, you know, Warren Berger was, of course, educated at William Mitchell when it was still just William Mitchell. Uh-huh. And, you know, like that's kind of kind of amazing that the chief justice of the Supreme Court was from a, a law school out in Minnesota. You know, right. that was kind of amazing. But since then, there hasn't really been major diversity of thought. Uh, Kennedy was the, well, let me see, Gorsuch and... Um, and Kavanaugh clerked for Kennedy. Uh-huh. Um, Alina Kagan hired Kavanaugh to you know work at Harvard as a you know so these people all know each other. Like I feel like they go to the same parties and yeah, the right. same people and everything. You know, <laughs> well I, I think they did a, a comparison with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and uh, they were they both clerked for Kennedy at the same time. Uh-huh. They both went to the same schools and all this stuff, and it's like all right, yep, they there there's a certain cloth that the Supreme Court sure. justices are cut Absolutely. from, and you know it would be nice to maybe have someone from the good old U of M or something yeah, right. like that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, in fact, there was somebody who was in the early uh, deliberations mm-hmm. being kicked around. I believe his name was David Strauss. Oh yeah, yeah. Here mm-hmm. from Minnesota, who's kind of got that type of background. Yeah. Well, he he came uh, when I was in law school. He would always, and this is while he was still uh, a justice on the Minnesota Supreme Court. This is before he got on the, the Eighth Circuit, and he would come and he would give a Supreme Court wrap up that was just so sharp, and he would answer any question that you wanted to. He'd kind of do it in accordance with the Federalist Society, and it was amazing to see someone who was appointed to a, an important position, but also willing to spend a time and teach and go through right. all that stuff with, yeah. with regular old students and sure. david strauss is fantastic and if he was ever put up for the supreme court we would be very uh be very happy with that pick i believe so yeah david pasco deputy chair of the republican party of minnesota appreciate you giving us some of your time tonight and we'll have you again shortly thank you very much for having me closing argument my name is walter hudson we'll talk with greg in minneapolis who's been holding patiently to get back into education when we return twin cities news talk am 1130 fm twin We started off the hour tonight talking about an effort in Michigan, a lawsuit on behalf of students there who are illiterate, who cannot read, a lawsuit being brought in federal court against the state of Michigan, alleging that those students' constitutional right to education has been violated, that they are being deprived of something to which they have a basic human right. Right. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Let's talk to Greg in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. Um, I wanted to recall 
and present um, a discussion that I heard. I'm thinking this was about 20 years ago about schools in the Washington, D.C. area where black families were so incensed with the quality of education that they started their own school system. Um, Okay, so what was the year? Um, I remember part of the discussion was movie theaters and and the culture of white, the culture of black, and the culture of part black and part white. They were all quite different. Um, So it was after the movie movies began becoming popular. I'm thinking about 1925, maybe. Oh, okay. So we're going way back. Yeah, approximately the time leading up to the Depression. Mm -hmm. But basically, the black parents, and at that time, black meant father and mother, both black. Right. Um, They got pissed off, and they had enough money, and they were high enough in the community that they pooled their resources and right. did something about right. it. Right, right, They right. built their own school system, or right. would have probably been one or two schools. Right. And they were just for black children. Mm-hmm. And the standard that they developed, and, you know, this goes back to the old method of parents deciding who the teachers were going to be. They'd interview mm-hmm. teachers yeah. and, and go through what the curriculum was going to be. Right. They set a standard that was high enough that within a period of five or six years, so I'm thinking maybe up to 1932 or 33 approximately, they had white parents paying money for their <laughs> kids to be able to attend black schools. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so that's one comment. I'm sorry, I don't remember. No, I mean, I, I'll do some research because that sounds like a great story and I'd love to d- dive deeper into it and share it with listeners. Yeah, I, I don't remember if it was National Public Radio or PBS. I think it was National Public Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, now, second thing is North Minneapolis actually produced at one time the largest number of justices, um, uh, physicians, and so on. It was very highly regarded, mm-hmm. um, that community. It was, uh, it was a Jewish community of Minneapolis, and, you know, we've, We've lost that, I mean, but at one time, 1930s, 1940s, that became a standard for the whole country. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my my concern, and my mom was a teacher, and she was part of the old system. She actually interviewed after college and became a music teacher in Wells, Minnesota, lived with a family when she was a teacher there. We still had one-room schoolhouses back then. I don't think she was in a one-room schoolhouse. But the community participation and the concern, and I'm happy to hear about these people in in Detroit getting pissed off. I think that's sure. what it takes. Right. But I'm, I want to say that the precedence you know, 100 years ago, 90 years ago, yeah. is here for the black community to say, you're not doing a very good job with our kids. There needs to be, the, and this is my point, and I appreciate the call, Greg, and I appreciate you holding as long as you did. This is my point, my appeal to my fellow conservatives. We need to be getting out in front of this problem. We need to be forging relationships in these communities that are laboring under these horrific educational outcomes and put our explanation and our prescription in front of them for their consideration. If we don't do that, then nothing is going to happen. Actually, worse than nothing, 
is going to happen. They're going to continue to be pushed in the direction that these students in Michigan are being pushed, which is having the idea put in their head that the reason why they can't read is because of racism. The reason why they can't read is because they have a constitutional right that's not being fulfilled because they're being, you know, treated like second class citizens on account of the color of their skin. And when they come to believe that, they are going to be hardwired down a path that's going to lead to the perpetuation of what got them to where they're at right now. They're going to make the problem worse because they're going to continue to to look to the state for the solution. That that anger that they righteously have right now about the lack of educational outcomes can and should be funneled in a productive direction that's actually going to result in real solutions, market-based solutions, whereby like what was talked about in terms of what happened in the 20s and the 30s where blacks took their own money and built their own schools and hired their own teachers in order to pursue their own value. Indeed, that is the right you have to pursue happiness. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com chairman of Papa John's, John Schlatter. I can't, that can't be how it's pronounced. Schlatter. That's how it's spelled. This guy's in trouble. Schnatter. Schnatter. There we go. This guy's in trouble because he used the N-word on a conference call in May. Now, I want to start off before we get into the context and well yeah the purpose of i guess go ahead well before we get into the context of how he used this word which is extraordinarily relevant i just want to speak to the the general notion of being upset because somebody used the n-word all right and you know as a as an african-american as a black man you know i have to establish that for this story I can honestly tell you that before I even read the story, just when I saw the headline at Forbes, which is Papa John's founder used N-word on conference call, right? When that was all I knew about this incident, I still didn't care at all, at all. Now, is it because I think that people should be going around using the N-word? No. Is it because I think that it it's generally a, a good idea or that it's acceptable or whatever? No, no. But I, I'm not looking. It doesn't. Let's put it this way. It doesn't hurt me, right? Like, what does it do to me on any level that this guy or any guy Use that word. Here's the here's the question that you have to ask yourself before you can be offended by something that somebody does or says. Who is that person to you? This is a question that the left never asks because to them it's irrelevant. Who is that person to you? Is John Schnatter a friend of mine? Is he a buddy? Is he somebody who I came up with? Is was he the best man at my wedding? Uh, is he? Does he go to my church? Is he one of my customers, one of my vendors? Is he somebody that I'm doing business with on a regular basis? Uh, is he teaching my kids? Who is he to me? 
And the answer to the question of who he is to me is a guy who founded a company that I've occasionally had pizza from. That's it. That's it. That's who he is to me. So what do I care if he's used the N-word, right? Now, if there are circumstances where this would prompt me to perhaps change my transaction decision. Like, I'm not, just to be honest with you, you know, it's not a not a sponsor of the program, Papa John's. And to my knowledge, I don't know if they're running ads on iHeart stations. I have no idea. Uh, I mean, the sports season on our on like KFAN is low right now, so no. Okay. Maybe, well, maybe, but... Re- regardless of whatever relationship they may or may not have with iHeart, they don't have a relationship with me. I like the pizza. I think it's okay. I think it's okay. It's, you know, it's, it is what it is. When you're looking for that, that on the spectrum of pizza places, that price range, they're all right, right? But they're not, it's not a place that I'm going to on a regular basis. I don't eat a lot of pizza these days. My decision as to what I'm going to eat and where I'm going to buy it from is not affected in any way by the fact that this guy used the N-word. Now, what might affect my decision to patronize Papa John's would be if I discovered that the company was actually using their their profits to fund Richard Spencer or, you know, some white nationalist organization or to, to fund the alt-right, you know, politically to tr- in order to affect public policy that violates my rights on the basis of the color of my skin. Then you, I might be upset because that actually is coming after me. That actually hurts me. A guy using a word onto itself has no ability to cause me harm whatsoever, especially when it's coming from a guy who who is nothing to me, which John Schnatner definitely is. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming on com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. I just find it hilarious that he used the word on a call that was meant to mitigate a PR crisis stemming from yeah, right. his Papa, or people in racist groups supporting Papa John's. So this that's that's the second half of our commentary here on this is... I just want to establish up front that it doesn't matter to me that this guy used the N-word at all. But then when you get into the context of exactly how he used it, this is the stupidest story on the face of the earth, and I don't know why I'm reading it. Why is this even a story? From Forbes, John Schnatner, the founder, chairman, and public face of pizza chain Papa John's, used the N-word on a conference call in May. Schnatner called... The incident in, uh, or confirmed the incident in an emailed statement to Forbes on Wednesday. The call was arranged between Papa John's executives and marketing agency Laundry Service. That's the name of the agency, Laundry Service. It was designed as a role playing exercise for Schnatter in an effort to prevent future public relations snafus. <laughs> the great irony, right? That worked. Schnatter caused an uproar in November 2017 when he waded into the debate over national anthem protests in the NFL and partly blamed the league for slowing sales at Papa John's. On the May call, uh, Schnatter 
was asked how he would distance himself from racist groups online. He responded by downplaying the significance of his NFL statement. This, and then he said, Colonel Sanders called blacks the N-word, and he used it. That's what he, that was the quote on the call. Colonel Sanders called blacks the N-word. And he's referring to the original, the actual Colonel Sanders from KFC before complaining that Sanders never faced public backlash. And so what he's saying is the guy who founded KFC called black people the N-word and didn't have to deal with this. Why is he having to deal with backlash because of his position on the NFL? Now, that's the context. So he used he didn't call somebody the N-word. He didn't refer to black people as N-words. He cited the fact that another guy in another time, in another context, called black people the N-word. But because he used it, because he said it, we're going to treat him as if, you know, He's a he's a rabbit. He basically is a white nationalist. He might as well just walk around in a KKK outfit from now on. I mean, his argument to defend that was pretty poor. Like that's just a whataboutism that he used. So it's a pretty poor art. Like I judge him for just that's a poor argument. <laughs> oh yeah, look, don't don't get me wrong. Stupid thing in this context. Stupid thing to say, right? Absolutely. He said a stupid thing and used a stupid argument. But what's stupider than him doing that is treating it as if it's something newsworthy, as if it's something that ought to affect our decision as to what kind of pizza we're going to buy, as if it's some sort of indication of where the culture's at, as if it has any sort of consequence whatsoever. This is nothing. This is the only reason I'm talking about it is because Forbes wrote an article. Right, Because it's somebody else thinks it's newsworthy and because I see my liberal friends on social media tweeting it out and posting it on Facebook as this big aha moment that, oh, you know, here's yet another, another example of Trump's America, racism in the West, white supremacy, the Papa John's guys going around calling people the N-word. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He just happens to be a little bit dumb when it comes to public relations. That's not, I mean, you know, you could tell that story if you want to. It's not much of one, but it's it's not the portend of white supremacy and white nationalism that the left would have you believe. Let's go to Anthony in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Yeah, I was just uh, commenting about the whole Papa Giants thing and whatnot and the irony of the whole contents of it, which you already highlighted on, so I need to go back over that, but... Uh, it's getting to the point almost where it's the boy who cried wolf. Yes. You know? And and there, it's it's unfortunately as a father of biracial children, mm-hmm. they may one day later on in life actually experience racism and speak up and it not be heard because that card has been overplayed. That's already happening. That's already happening. It, it, and and I think it's 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 getting worse and worse and it's. It's very unfortunate because I think there it does exist in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's as big as the liberal media would like to make it seem, but it is there. Yeah, it, right. it is there, and yeah. uh, I I think it's unfortunate now that uh, it's it's become such a broad uh, racist is, is now not. I mean, it's such a broad term now. Mm-hmm. Where does it where does it end? You know, are we talking about personal prejudice? 
Are we talking about sexual pregnancy? Are we talking about, you know, I mean, where, where does it end? Who yeah. knows? And, and it's getting overplayed. So I'll take your comments out there. Thank you. I appreciate the call, Anthony, as, as usual. Yeah, you know, I'll give you a, a tangible, real-world example of how what Anthony is talking about there, the the boy-who-cried-wolf effect and the desensitization to actual racism has had a, a tangible effect upon the politics and culture of these United States. All we have to do is b- rewind to 2016 and the ascendancy of Donald Trump. One of my big problems with the presidential campaign of Donald Trump, one of the one of the the sticking points with me personally that kept me from being able to support him at that time was the extent to which his campaign was attracting support from the alt right. And the alt right is something that we have to define, right? If we're going to talk about it, we have to define it because far too many people do not understand what the alt right actually is. And, you know, that's on purpose because both the, the people who constitute the alt-right and the left have both engaged in, in campaigns to try to confuse people as to what the alt-right is. But it's very clear what it is, right? Like, the alt-right is to white nationalism what progressives are to communists, which is to say the communists realized that they couldn't sell communism and socialism to the broader public, so they came up with this term progressive as a brand name in order to advance precisely the same ideology. In a similar sense, white nationalists, white supremacists realized that they weren't having too much luck with you know, having a swastika as their trademark and walking around talking about white power. So they decided, you know, how can we sell this to a broader audience? And they came up with the term alt-right. Richard Spencer was the guy who coined it. He's the president of something called the National Policy Institute, which is a white nationalist organization. And that's who these people are. These are people who believe that my existence as a biracial person and the existence of my children as multiracial people in the United States is an inherent threat to the culture, to the integrity of the United States of America. That's what they believe. Now, that is real racism. And the fact that they loved Donald Trump and that Donald Trump didn't seem to aggressively refute them was one of the primary reasons why I was never able to get on board with Donald Trump. Now, in retrospect, I will grant you and I'm willing to admit that Donald Trump was largely ignorant of what the alt-right was, that he didn't really care about Richard Spencer or any of these fringe people who were promoting him and who were saying, you know, who were saying he was the best thing since sliced bread and that he could have taken them or left them, that he was not particularly interested in even addressing them, and that he does not believe at all for one second the things that the alt-right believes. But, you know, be that as it may, this was an example. Didn't Trump almost nominate Richard Spencer as the Secretary of the Navy? I don't think. He did. I don't remember. You'll have to look that up, because I'd never heard that. So, oh, he absolutely did. Um, I remember the story, and, like, I think that he was aware of it, but he didn't do anything about it. Like, he he may not have, like, it's kind of what Ron Paul does with the newsletters, the newsletter controversy. Right, in that right, right. He, it's a wink and a nod. He knows it's there, but he's not going to, you know, make it a thing. He Well, because it make it's to his benefit. Like, Ron Paul knows that his newsletters make him money, and 
granted, Ron Paul may be uninvolved in the organization, really, mm-hmm. but he realizes that he can't push too hard on it because that's making him money. That's giving him support. Right. So it's the, it's along the same vein. And, and Trump did have ties to Richard Spencer in that he tried to nominate him for Secretary of the Navy. All right. The, the point being, for the sake of this conversation... That the reason why the alt-right was able to fly under the radar in 2016 is because, and I remember this, because I was right in the thick of it. I wrote a piece at PJ Media at the time, before anybody knew what the alt-right was, saying the alt-right is evil and must be defeated. That was the headline. And I posted that, and people were like, what are you even talking, what is this alt-right? And, and the, the, per, the number one reaction I got from that article is, I don't believe that these people exist. Okay, point of clarification, it is a different Richard Spencer. Okay. <laughs> it is Richard V. Spencer. <laughs> okay, I, and, I, and I think I know who that guy is. But yeah, you know, the, the overwhelming reaction that I got to sounding the clarion call, the warning bell about the alt-right in 2016 was, I don't believe this is a real thing. I don't believe these people actually exist. And the reason why people didn't want to believe that the alt-right was a real thing was exactly because of what Anthony just said. Because we've had this boy who cries wolf effect, whereby everybody's racist every time they open their mouth and do anything. If they're white, and if they're male, and if they're heterosexual, everything they do and say is racist. And in that context, people get desensitized to it. To the point where when actual racism rears its ugly head, you can't even recognize it. Or worse, you don't care. Because your your level of of sensitivity has dropped to the point where it doesn't even matter to you anymore. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We started off the program tonight talking about how the left is fervent and dedicated and committed. They are willing to do whatever it takes to win whatever it takes to advance their cause. They think long-term. They think strategically. Now, you know, they're not always smart about it, thank God. In fact, they're often quite dumb about it, and we're seeing a lot of that in the modern moment in the era of the resistance against Donald Trump and the overreaction to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, the obsession with alleged Russian collusion and what have you. You know, there are a lot of examples where the left (laughs) gets it wrong in terms of how they go about trying to pursue their goals. But the, the, what you got to hand to them, what you got to tip your hat to is they are committed to doing whatever it takes. They're willing to go, go all the way in order to achieve their goals. And there's a sense in which conservatives need to emulate that. And I think that's a big part of the reason why Donald Trump has been so successful and has been so popular is because conservatives see in him somebody who is willing to be that champion, who's willing to go to the mattresses, who's who's willing to engage in knockdown, drag out fights in order to achieve his objectives. And I appreciate that aspect of him as well. I just wish he was often doing it towards different ends. But you know, be that as it may, 
one of the things we have to recognize is that this is necessary. You have to be willing to take the fight to the other side and to and to do more than just react, to be more than reactive, to be proactive, to be putting your ideas out there and trying to push them forward. And uh, one of the things that we know about the left and one of the distinctions that hopefully will always divide the left from the right is that they don't have any limiting governing principle on how far they're willing to take that fight. And they are willing to make it quite literal. They are willing to engage in violence. Former talk radio host, current congressman from the 2nd Congressional District, Jason Lewis, had an opinion piece over at Fox News where he got into this. He talked about the turbulent 1960s when legitimate grievances over civil rights in Vietnam were hijacked by extremist elements and spun violently out of control. He said that he he thought that he would never see the likes of that sort of political divisiveness engulf the nation again. But today, the chaos and worse excesses of radical groups from the five decades ago are back. But instead of the Weather Underground, the Black Panthers, or the SDS, we now see socialist extremist groups like Antifa once again advocating violence against their political opponents. And he goes on to rail against the, the violence that we have seen and the violation of rights that we've seen coming out of the left. And this piece is quite the... Quite the combination or list of incidents that we've seen of both actual violence and incitement to violence as of late from the left. You know, he talks about the fact that when he was traveling in his district, this being Jason Lewis, that his next door neighbor called him to tell him that he, the, the neighbor's kids were frightened by a large group of activists who were protesting in Jason Lewis's lawn and on his porch. And then he throws up the example of Brian Mast, who's a representative from Florida, a freshman, who was uh, threatened by a liberal activist to kill his three young children. And this is a guy, Mast, who served 12 years in the U.S. Army, won the Bronze Star and other medals, and tragically lost both his legs in an explosion while serving as a bomb disposal expert in Afghanistan. There is no limit to what the left is willing to go to in terms of trying to affect their whims or their political objectives. He brings up, Jason Lewis brings up Steve Scalise, of course, who was gunned down during a congressional baseball practice. He talks about Rand Paul, a number of incidents where protesters have entered congressional offices and refused to leave, numerous threats that have been made to Trump administration officials. And of course, we saw recently the reports of harassment of White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen, outgoing Environmental Protection Administrator Scott Pruitt. And of, and then, of course, there's the the example of you know Peter Fonda, who talked about how Baron Trump should be ripped from his mother's arms and put in a cage with pedophiles. I mean, my Lord, the extent to which they're willing to go. And again, we should not be emulating the means, but we do need to emulate the passion with which the left engages on this front and and do so in a proactive way to get our ideas out in front of constituencies who would benefit from them. We talked about education earlier today. We got Barry in St. Paul who wants to speak to that. When we return, closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. You got me thinking that I'm wasting my time. 
Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop right up. I especially recommend uh, the show we had on Monday where we reacted to the announcement uh, by President Trump of David Kavanaugh as the nominee for the Supreme Court. We had Jamar Nelson and Mike Franklin in here to break it down for us. And it was entertaining, if I do say so myself. Always entertaining when we get other people in here to yell at each other and scream at each other. A little bit of arena action. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Olin takes those calls and produces the show. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Thanks for holding. Hey, Walter. I wanted to ask you a question. I understand intellectually where you want to go with education. I understand the theoretical steps to get there. But my question is, is how do we create the will to have that happen politically? Because with with the states having this mandate for an education, right, mm-hmm. that creates the state having to be part of it. And when the state has to be part of it, then you have all these mandates for construction and right. rules about who can be teachers and can't right. be teachers and all that fun stuff. And that's the problem right now. Yeah. So how do you get from where we are to create the will to get to where we need to be? Well, I think the the task has already begun on a small scale in the form of what you're seeing happen with charter schools. And, you know, they're in neighborhoods where you otherwise see these horrendous results from the public education system where kids are scoring poorly or they're coming out illiterate or you know whatever situation they find themselves laboring under right next door there's a charter school that's serving the exact same population of students demographically and yet they're excelling and they're doing really well which indicates very clearly that the issue is not it's not inherent to the kids it's not inherent to the students. It's about the service that they're being provided and how it's being provided to them. I I don't, I don't disagree with you. I agree with your point, but I think you're missing that more people see it the other way than see it the way the truth is because they've been told this isn't how it is. They've been told, well, the educate, if we start pulling kids out of the public education system, that's a collapse the education system. Right. When the truth of the matter is, the education system doesn't, isn't serving the kids. It's not, doesn't exist. It never has. To serve the yeah, kids. That's right. What, what it, it exists to do is serve the Democrat party by putting money into the coffers. Right. Of, of these, political groups, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then turning around, right? And then creating construction, mm-hmm. right? That gets driven that drives these community action committees, right? Right. To be able to have these people on these construction stuff. And it's just a big circle of people taking money out of it's a trough. Yeah. Yeah. That should be going to helping these kids. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And we, we talked about that uh, earlier with a previous caller, the the fact that the 
the incentive of the system is not to educate the children. That's not the point of the system. The point of the system, as you allude to, is to service the adults, whether they be the teachers or the unions or the, the politicians or the contractors, the construction workers, whatever the case may be. It's to do whatever it takes to keep the party going in terms of government funding and guaranteeing everybody's uh, tenure and jobs going into perpetuity. It, and the last thing on anybody's mind is how the kids are doing, and then only to justify the continuation of the party. And and that's what where where my concern is, right? So so how the only way you change this is by changing the so the kids that are in school right now, right? Mm-hmm. So it won't be the parents that have kids right now that are going to change it. It's not going to be. The people that are 18, 19, you know, that don't have kids yet but are getting to that age where they're going to soon have kids, right? Mm-hmm. And it won't be those people. It's going to be the people who are 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 right now. How do we, how do we help them see that light? When, when they're going through the public education system in the, the way they are right now, how do we help them find that light so when they become adults, right, they drive them, their demand, right, they create a demand by wanting their kids to have better schooling. How do we start down that road to create that impulse to have that? You know, because that's what it's going to take. Just like the left wants to push us in certain directions, the right's going to have to start looking long-term yeah. and and create this demand, because that's the way we operate, yeah. that we supply and demand, that we have to find a way to do that in the people who have the ability to change, to, to move our country towards the direction that it needs to go. Right. But no, I don't see anybody doing that. No, and you're right, and that's exactly the the intention of my raising the topic tonight is to get people to think on those terms of what are we what's our plan what are we doing in order to try to affect the culture because to my mind that's the real purpose of this lawsuit out of michigan where they're taking a case to federal court in order to allege that the state of michigan is depriving students who are illiterate of a basic human right of a of an alleged constitutional right the purpose isn't to win the case the purpose is to get that that argument in the paper so it's in front of people's eyes and so they start thinking about it and and accepting the notion of yeah i do have a constitutional right to an education so that that informs the public discourse going forward we need to start thinking in those terms of what actions can we take to get our narrative in front of people's eyes so that they can start thinking about education as a commodity which it is just like any other form of product or service that you would seek after in the market well, and that was my question is, well, how do you see us starting to do that? Or do you not have an answer to that yet? I don't have an answer to that. I don't have the definitive answer to that. I don't think there is a definitive answer. I think there are an, a variety of different paths that you could take. The The thing that comes immediately to mind on the micro level is just your individual circle of influence and making sure that, you know, you talked about kids who are six, seven years old, you know, going through the public education system today. I, I can do what I can with my kids 
and the kids in my circle of influence to try to get them to understand what the value in education is and how they, they to actually pursue it. I can talk to the parents that I know. I happen to have a radio show, right? So that's that's something I can leverage to try to get the idea in people's heads that, look, you're not stupid, right? Like, you don't need somebody to tell you what your kids need. You know what your kids need. Like, the, this is what I would say to the, the parents of these students in Michigan who are uh, a part of this lawsuit. How do you know, how do you know that your kids are, aren't being served by virtue of the fact that they're illiterate. How do you know that literacy is a value that you ought to pursue? Did somebody tell you that? Did somebody pass a law that that mandates to you that your kids ought to be able to read? Or did you figure it out on your own? And if you could figure it out on your own, then can you not then take actions necessary in order to pursue that value and if you were empowered if you had the ability if instead of turning to the state and saying and you know going through a lawsuit process and you know with your hat in your hand begging the big benevolent state to give you something that you want what if you were empowered to actually chase after it to actually hire somebody to do the job well somebody who is accountable to you not to the politicians it's an easy case to make. You just need to get in front of people to do it. And the, and that's step one. We need to get in front of the people. And this is why, and I appreciate the call, Barry. we got to go to break. I appreciate your holding. This is why I'm so frustrated with what I see as the backsliding within the Republican Party. Specifically when it comes to, I hate this terminology, but I'll use it, minority outreach, building constituencies, there was this effort prior to 2016, prior to the ascendancy of Donald Trump. I was a part of it here in Minnesota. There was this effort locally and nationally to try to build to try to build relationships in communities that currently are not Republican constituencies. To get out in front of Somalis, to get out in front of Hispanics, to get out in front of, of uh, African Americans, to get into these communities in the inner city where we are not currently welcome, and to start shaking hands and and asking questions and listening to their problems because we have answers to their problems, and our answers are actual answers. Our solutions are functional, and moral, and potent. But they're not hearing them because there's nobody there to tell them because we're too all, all too afraid to go in there. We're too afraid that we're going to be called racists or that we're, or worse, that we're going to be mugged or something, right? Like the, it's, it's ridiculous. And until we're willing to go in there and to take the chance of social rejection, to take the chance of being called names in order to talk to one person, to look them in the eye and, and introduce ourselves and ask them about their life and then talk to them like an e- evangelist about the power of conservatism, the power of the market, things are not going to change. So that's step one, build relationships. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, We talked earlier about Papa John's founder and chairman, John Schnatter, who was in hot water after using the N-word during a conference call. 
And, you know, the context was, it's not like he was going around. Yeah, I wouldn't care regardless. I wouldn't care what the context was, because as it turns out, the dude who runs the company that I occasionally buy pizza from is not somebody whose opinion I highly value. So I'm not sure why I should care that he used a word in any context. But be that as it may, turns out the context was it's not that he was calling somebody the N-word or was referring to black people as N-words. He was citing the fact he used the word in the context of citing the fact that other people have said it. Now we get the late breaking news tonight that that was enough to cost him his job from Bloomberg. Papa John's International Inc.'s chairman, John Schnatter, resigned after coming under fire over controversial comments that battered the shares of the pizza chain he founded. So there you go. It it doesn't matter what the context was. It doesn't matter what your intention was. It doesn't matter whether or not you're actually a racist or you actually hold racist views. If you use a prohibited word you're going to lose your job as CEO of a pizza company or whatever your job happens to be. This is not a healthy sign for our culture. The fact that we're this reactive, that this is the expectation. You know, we we had a, a story we talked about, I believe, on, on Monday where there was, a, there was an op-ed um, regarding Laura Ingalls Wilder having her name taken off a literary award. And the gal who wrote the op-ed was making the case. She asked the question, you know, is anybody really good enough to have something named after them? Is anybody really good enough to have a lake named after them or a street or a school or a literary award? Is there anybody who's pure enough for their legacy to endure scrutiny over the ages? Which is the stupidest question I've heard in a while. I don't know exactly how long, but certainly a while. Because at no point in history has the premise of putting somebody's name on a school or naming an award after them or naming a lake after them or whatever. At no point has the premise been from this point forward, we're, we're throwing this person up as the standard. A perfect human being who never committed any sins, never said anything wrong who should be the model for all who follow. That's never been the premise of doing that. And we've, we've gotten to the point where, ironically, in a technological context where we have more access to the private moments of our fellow human beings than we have ever had before in the history of the world, where, where the, the comments made on a private conference call within the context of a corporation conducting its business, get, ends up becoming the content on the front page of Bloomberg or Forbes, or whatever the case may be. You know, where we, we, I don't remember the, exact, the, the guy's name. There was a, a guy who got in trouble in the NBA, coach of a team, because he had, his girlfriend let slip that he had used the N-word. Donald Sterling. Yeah, Donald Sterling. In the privacy of his own home... In conversations with friends, he'd used the N-word, and he ended up losing his position over it. 
This is the context in which we live, where we have greater access to people's private conversations and private thoughts and private moments than we've ever had before. And simultaneously, we've adopted this standard whereby nobody can survive scrutiny. Nobody. Nobody. Because I got news for you. You put the microscope on any human being for long enough, you're going to find something they've said or done that's offensive to somebody. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, particularly if you're young, particularly if you're a millennial or, or younger, you're still in school, the question you have to ask yourself is, is this the world you want to live in? Because this is the legacy that the current generation is leaving you. An environment whereby there's no such thing as forgiveness. There's no such thing as perspective. There's no such thing as context. There's this draconian expectation that you've never said or done anything that's offensive to anyone. And apparently the only thing you can tweet about or post on Facebook is, you know, what you're eating and your your general vanilla feelings about how furry a bunny is or something along those lines. Like that you you cannot express an actual meaningful opinion on a topic that matters because somebody's going to be offended by it. You can't use a word frivolously in a context that shouldn't rationally be offensive because by virtue of the fact that you uttered the word, you're potentially going to lose your job. You got to ask yourself, is this the world you want to live in? Because the people who are going to change this are is the younger generation by waking up and realizing, you know what? I don't I don't want to have every single thing that I posted on Twitter when I was in high school used against me when I go to run for city council 10 years from now. Right? Like we need to develop some social standards by which perspective is reintroduced into the culture. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, twincitiesnewstalk.com.